It's after Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians, remember, General Electric Phone Company, help you remember. The book of Colossians. Lord, this morning, we've gathered in this place hoping and expecting and believing that you want to dwell with us. Knowing, Lord, that you want to meet with us and that you want to speak to us. And so as we open up your word right now, we understand that we are embarking upon a brand new season as a church, a brand new journey as we look into this book of Colossians. And we are believing you, God, to speak to us in a powerful way. We're asking that, Father, you would send the Holy Spirit, who's a teacher of all things, to walk us through this book, to instruct us in the deep and correct things concerning Jesus Christ and our salvation and our response to it. Lord, we ask that at the end of our study of this book, we would be infinitely more in love with you than we are today that we would be more zealous in representing you. We would be more connected to the vine, abiding in you. And that your love and your grace and your power would be abounding through us. Lord, as we study the book of Colossians and we come face to face with the reality of who you are, would you refine us, Lord? Would you purge things out of us that shouldn't be there? Would you build things into us that need to be there? We're asking that you would do a deep work in our hearts, in this congregation, on this coastline, through this book. And so, Lord, now I submit my mouth and my mind to you. I ask that you would author my thoughts. I ask that every word that comes from this mouth would be directly from your throne. Speak to us, Lord. Be glorified, Jesus Christ. Pray it in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, come alive, people. Book of Colossians, let's read the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We have before us a letter written by the apostle Paul. I don't know if you know this, but these small books in the middle of your New Testament were letters. They were personal correspondence, many of them written by the Apostle Paul and sent to individual churches or to a group of churches in a certain region. This is a letter, another letter, a word for letter, excuse me, is epistle. And so we often call them the epistles of Paul. This is a letter of Paul written to the members of the church in a little town called Colossae. It's amazing to me that a letter became Bible. Isn't that wonderful? I'm sure that Paul, uh, having a sense that God wanted to use them, was being ob- wanted to use him, was being obedient to God when he wrote the letter, was doing so in a response to God, but I'm sure that he never imagined that the letters that he wrote would become Scripture on par with the rest of the Scripture, the Old Testament, that he was so familiar with. There's a wonderful lesson in that reality, that when you are obedient to God, you never know the width 
and the breadth and the depth and the length and the height to which God might use you. You never know. Paul was just writing a letter in response to a request from one of his friends. And it became Holy Scripture. Now God knew that. It was God doing it through Paul. It's proper to say that Paul penned the letter, but that the Holy Spirit authored the letter. But what about you and your response to God in your daily life? Don't discount the small things. Don't discount opportunity to encourage somebody, to speak into their life, to pray for them, to pray corporately, to care for somebody, to meet them in need. Don't discount that. That's God moving through you. And those things will yield eternal fruit and eternal reward. And in many cases, more than we could ever conceive of. I would challenge you today to think before God, to think before His Holy Spirit. Lord, is there anything you've been calling me to do? And I haven't done it. And then be encouraged to do it today. Because the Lord will use it more than you ever thought possible. You see, the Lord's word does not return void. And the Lord does not waste time. If he's calling you to invest time, it's going to be fruitful. Amen? So Paul writes this letter, which becomes scripture for us. And he writes it to this place called Colossae. Colossae is in an area which is now modern Turkey. I want to show you a couple maps here so we can kind of begin to grasp where it is. Uh, There's the globe. Pretty cool, huh? Let's look first on the globe where we are. Let's zoom in to Carpinteria, California, 5251 6th Street. Whoa, here we go. There's Carpinteria. There's 6th Street. There's Palm. And uh, the screen's having some difficulty. You see the big white roof? That's what you're under right now. This is satellite imagery. You see the big white roof? That's our church right there. That's where we are. A little tiny speck on this giant globe. 5216 Street. Look at the beach. It looks good right now. (laughs) Now let's see where the ancient town of Colossae was. Zooming out. Heading east. Across the Atlantic. Over past Europe to the Middle East. Zooming in on Asia Minor. There's the island of Cyprus down below. And now you see where the church of Colossae, where the town of Colossae was located, right there. You see it? This region here is known as Asia Minor. Down here you have Israel. Now let's look at a map that will make things a little more clear for us. A map of which I know. There we go. Thank you. So here's the area that we just previously zoomed into, Asia and Asia Minor. Again, here's Israel over here, Greece, Italy. Over here is France. This is Portugal down here. This is Spain. By the way, in this area of Spain, there's unbelievable surf. It's an area called Galicia. There is. If you've never been there, there's great waves there. I've been all through that region. Also great waves in the south of France right there. Nonetheless, I digress. Over here... In Asia Minor is the region where Colossae was. Now, Paul traveled, of course, from Israel, from Jerusalem, up into this region on his three missionary journeys. And by the end of the first century, the the church encompassed about this large of an area, which was most of the known Roman Empire. By the end of the second century, the church had expanded to about that large of of an area, coming down into Africa and up to the area of Germany. And all the way across into Asia. Now we look at a little closer map. 
Now we see zooming in here on Asia Minor, and you have such places as Galatia. There's Galatia, like the letter to the Galatians. Uh, Ephesians is right there, or Ephesus is right there. If we were to move to the left off the screen, you would have Corinth, the book of Corinthians, which of course was in Greece. Israel, once again, for your references down here. And here we have the little tiny town of Colossae right there. It was hard to find it on Bible maps. It's not on most Bible maps. and no longer exists today. Today, if you go there, there's simply a tell. A tell is a mound of successive ruins of ancient culture in a certain area. When we go to Israel, we'll see these big round mounds. They're, they're really, they look like mountains. And we'll think, what mountain is that? And our tour guide will say, well, that's Tel Megiddo. Tel Megiddo. Har Megiddo. Har being uh, Hebrew for mountain. Megiddo, the Valley of Megiddo. We'll see Tel Megiddo, the ancient ruins of Megiddo in the Valley of Armageddon. Because as uh, cities were wiped out, they would be rebuilt on top of the rubble. And then they were wiped out again, uh, Colossae, twice by earthquake or by invading armies. And they'd be built again and wiped out again and built again. And after centuries and thousands of years, you had a big mound. And for the final time, it would be ruined. So now if you go to Colossae, this is what it looks like. All that is left of that city is that mound in the foreground. A few centuries before the time of Jesus, Colossae was an very important, a very important city. It was an important business district. Uh, there was lots of commerce going on there. It was a relatively big town, and it was on a major trout route that went from the east to west. But by the time that Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, it has fallen out of importance. No longer considered to be a major city, no longer considered to be an important city or a city of any size or prosperity. In fact, Paul on his three missionary trips through the region never went to Colossae. He never went there. It's the only church that we have him writing to that he never went to. He never visited. It was too small, too inconsequential, too unimportant. Paul never went there. Um. It diminished in stature because there was a larger town that grew up just 10 miles to the west of it. That was the city of Laodicea. Does that sound familiar? From the seven churches in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, I wish that you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. The church in Laodicea. Laodicea was just 10 miles to the west of Colossae and it was the growth of Laodicea as an important area that caused Colossae to diminish in importance. Kind of like Carpinteria and Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara is exactly 10 miles to the west of Carpinteria. And Carpinteria, with regards to commerce, was at one time very important. This building that we are in right now, historically speaking, almost 100 years ago, was uh, a lemon packing factory. And it connected to the railroad tracks, and lemons would go from Carpinteria to all over the country from right here. In this building were stacked lemons, 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 and they'd be loaded on the trains. And of course, we are the avocado capital of the world. And the, the um, shopping center where you go, where Thrifty's is and all that stuff, I remember when that was just lemon and avocado, even in my lifetime when I was just little kids. Carpinteria used to be very important for commerce, not really quite as much now. And we're kind of dwarfed by the shadow of Santa Barbara. 
I've traveled around the world, and as I go around the world, um, people ask me where I'm from. I've stopped saying Carpinteria, California. Nobody knows. They go, Carpinteria? Nobody even knows, like in Southern California. Where are you from? Carpinteria. Carpa who? Carpal tunnel? Carpet, what, what? Where are you from? But all around the world, if I say Santa Barbara, they go, oh, Santa Barbara. We watch the soap opera. That stupid thing still plays in Europe. And so we're kind of dwarfed by this town that is 10 miles to the west of us, and we're a little bit smaller, a little less consequential in human terms. And so it was with the city of Colossae. As I said, Paul never went there on any of his missionary journeys, but he did go to another town that was just to the west of it, which was Ephesus. Ephesus being about 100 miles west of Colossae, near the coast. Paul spent three years there ministering at the church in Ephesus. Left Timothy later on to pastor that church. And it was when Paul was in Ephesus that he led a young man to the Lord by the name of Epaphras. Epaphras was a native of Colossae. Epaphras met Paul and met the Lord in Ephesus and then went home to Colossae and the young man started the church of the Colossians there in his hometown. And he is the one that solicited this letter from Paul. It's kind of like uh, church history. Generally speaking, in church history, uh, when there was outreach or there was church planning going on, people would go to a big city, a city that was kind of the hub, and then from there they would move out to the smaller cities around it or to the suburbs. It happened in this area. In the early 70s, uh, some Christians in Carpinteria and my dad wanted to start a church here in Carpinteria. They wanted to start a Calvary Chapel. And they called up Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa and Chuck Smith and said, hey, we're interested in starting a church. We'd like for it to be a Calvary Chapel. Can you come up? And uh, some of the elders from Costa Mesa came up and they took a look around and they said, we'll get back to you. And they got back to the people of Carpinteria a few weeks later and said, we'd really like to start the church first in Santa Barbara. It's got a bigger population. It's kind of the hub. And so we think that really, being that, that being the more important city, we should start the church in Santa Barbara. And so Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara was birthed and is still there today. This church has come out of Santa Barbara. Much in the same way that Paul went to Ephesus, started a church in Ephesus, this young man named Epaphras met the Lord in Ephesus, went to his hometown of Colossians, and started the church there that we're going to become so acquainted with. Very interesting similarities. It means nothing, but it's interesting. <laughs> and though Colossians were, or Colossae was an unimportant town in the sense of history and commerce at the time, what is clear is that it was very important to God. It made his book. The little church of the Colossians made his book. It was very important to God. And so is this community of Carpinteria. Amen. Not only did it make his book, but the book of Colossians is one of the most theologically rich and important books in the entire Bible. I don't know if you know, knew that. That we are about to study a book that is more Im- theologically rich and important than, mo- than almost any other book that you can study, including the book of Romans. Unbelievable theological truths in this book. And the main point of this book is this. The preeminence of Jesus Christ. The main point of the book of Colossians is the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Preeminence meaning his superiority. 
or the super excellence of Jesus Christ. The main point of the book of Colossians is the super excellence of Jesus Christ. J.B. Lightfoot said the full teaching about the person of Christ is presented in this book with greater precision and fullness than in any other epistle in the New Testament. Now there's a reason why the book of Colossians is so theologically weighty and so theologically rich with regards to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that is because Paul wrote it in order to combat some heresies or some false teachings and ideas about Jesus that were floating around the community and the church at the time. Paul writing this in about the year 60 to 62 AD from prison in Rome. So destructive and dangerous were the heresies, the false ideas and teachings about Jesus that were being circulated throughout the community and throughout the church, that Epaphras, the founder of the church, left his hometown of Colossae, traveled over a thousand miles west to Rome where Paul was imprisoned and met Paul there to, number one, inform Paul of the heretical teachings that were infiltrating the church in Colossae, and number two, to beseech his help. And so it is in response to Epaphras' report of wrong ideas about Jesus that Paul the Apostle writes this letter from prison to the church in Colossae. Now, what exactly these false teachings were about Jesus, we'll get into that in the weeks to come. In the weeks to come, we'll see Paul making these heavy theological statements and assertions. And we'll look at what was behind those or what prompted him to say that, which were those false teachings. So in the week to come, uh, we'll become very acquainted in the weeks, excuse me, with the false teachings that were floating around. They had to do with Gnosticism and with legalism. Wrong ideas about Jesus Christ, wrong ideas about how to walk with him. We'll study those in the week to come. But suffice it to say that there's a tremendous parallel between that community and our community. Because in our community, there is a litany of false ideas about who Jesus Christ is. We have a very strong population on this coastline of Jehovah's Witnesses. They have an incorrect view of who Jesus is. We have an even larger population, I believe, in this community of Mormons who also have a wrong idea, a false teaching about who Jesus is. Also very strong in this community is a New Age movement. Again, teaching a different Jesus. Um, Eastern philosophies and mysticism, again, presenting a different Jesus, are prevalent on this coastline. And then there's syncretism, which is trying to make them all fit into one, and that is a popular idea. I have friends who are into something called theosophy, which is the combining of all sorts of different religions into one, a synchronistic sort of religion. Again, they present a different Jesus. And what is interesting is that just like the false teachings that were going around Colossae at the time, none of those groups deny the existence of Jesus. They're not denying Jesus. Rather, what they're doing is dethroning Jesus. And the book of Colossians puts Jesus right back on the throne where he belongs. These groups speak of Jesus. In fact, Jesus may even be... um, Uh, prominent in their teachings. 
But in their teachings, he is not preeminent. He is not super excellent. He is not the name above every name. He is a name that is set alongside other names. And so it can become very confusing for our community when there are the Mormon teachings about Jesus and the Jehovah's Witnesses teachings about Jesus and New Age teachings and Eastern philosophy and so on and so forth, it can become confusing. And so the church in Colossae became confused and so Paul writes the letter. Our goal in this letter is to become so acquainted with the theological truth of Jesus that we are able to dispel the confusion in our community. Our goal as a church is to become so acquainted, have such a handle and a grasp upon the theological truth of Jesus that we can, with our mouth, dispel the confusion and the lies about Jesus. But that means you've got to roll up your sleeves and you've got to get into it. You've got to get involved. You've got to digest it. You've got to chew it. You've got to study it. You've got to meditate upon it. You've got to let the Holy Spirit quicken it to your hearts. If you don't have a strong grasp upon the truths, then you get easily confused. For example, I've been teaching, or excuse me, coaching my son's soccer team. He's four years old, and he plays in a little AYSO soccer league, uh, four- to six-year-old division. Now, uh, you guys know of my athletic prowess. Uh, You know about my athletic skills. In other words, there are none whatsoever. Those of you that played softball with me, you know that I got demoted from first place to right field. Nobody ever hits the ball to right field. Actually, it was worse than right field. It was right center. In case a lefty got up to bat and did hit it to right field, I wouldn't be there to botch the play. I was over in right center where there's never any balls. You've heard about me playing t-ball when I was a kid and striking out at t-ball. Right there at El Carroll Park. No athletic skill whatsoever. Um, But somehow I'm coaching a soccer team. It's very scary. And so in the middle of the soccer game, uh, they make you do a horrible thing. They switch which goal your team is going for. (laughs) So halfway through, I'm telling these four-year-olds, that's your goal. Kick the ball in that goal. And and then they switch it. Okay, that's your goal. How are four-year-olds supposed to grasp that? I couldn't get it. And so the first game, they had switched goals, and there's our little team, and they're running down the field kicking the ball toward the correct goal. They actually got it, the goal that they had been switched to. And I yelled, wrong way, wrong way, turn around, turn around. And they're like, what? Oh, coach says turn around. They turned around, and they began to kick the ball in the other way. And they scored a goal in the other goal. The athletic embarrassment continues for me. But you see, I didn't have a familiarity with soccer. I didn't have a grasp on it. And so when there came a situation that was a little bit different, I wasn't able to immediately be instant, ready, in and out of season. I wasn't able to immediately respond with that which was correct. I got confused and sent the team in a wrong direction. Listen to me. You've got to have an immediate, thorough grasp of the theology of Jesus Christ. Because people are going to be yelling out in our community, change goals, go in a different way. Jesus is really like this. 
And there will be false teachings that arise. And you've got to be able to respond with authority and clarity to these things. you understand what I'm saying? The book of Colossians, by the Holy Spirit working, will equip us for such a thing. Also, in uh, the city of Colossae, the church of the Colossae at the time, many were seeking to make Jesus just an addition to other systems of belief. Or they wanted to add something else to Christianity. We see that happening all, all the time today. Much of it happens in the church out of ignorance. People aren't walking in the truths of Jesus Christ. They're not walking in the grace of God. So they begin to think, well, there must be something more that I've got to add. And then we see a church that falls into legalism. Or they begin to think, they come maybe to church here and they hear the teaching, they hear the gospel, they see what's going on, and they think, well, this Jesus thing is pretty cool. If I just add Jesus to my belief system, then it can't be bad, right? He could just be an addition, And that's what was going on at the Church of Colossae at the time. And so what the book combats is that idea that Jesus could ever be an addition to anything or that anything could ever be an addition to him. The book of Colossians teaches the absolute sufficiency of Jesus Christ, the absolute sufficiency of Jesus for all things. Just in chapter 1 alone, we learn these things about Jesus that in him we have redemption and forgiveness. Chapter 1, verse 14. That he is the exact representation of the invisible God. Verse 15. That all things were created by him. Verse 16. That all things were created for him. Verse 16 again. That he existed prior to all things. Verse 17. That he holds all things together. Again, verse 17. That he is the head of the church. Verse 18. That he is the beginning. Again, verse 18. That he has first place in all things. Verse Verse 18 again. That all the fullness of deity dwells in him. Verse 19. That by his blood we have peace with God. Verse 20. And that by him we are presented before God holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Verse 22. Now that's just seven verses out of chapter 21. All these good times to come, people. I won't even mention the things that are taught about Jesus in chapter 2. Oh, maybe I will. In verse 3, it says that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In verse 10, it says, in Him we have been made complete. In verse 11, it says that in Him we have the removal of the body of flesh. In chapter 2, verse 12, it says that we have been buried with Him in baptism so that we might be raised with Him through faith. In verse 14, it says that he canceled out the certificate of debt that was against us. And in verse 15, it says that he disarmed all demonic rulers and authorities and has triumphed over them, having made them a public spectacle upon the cross. That's just six verses from chapter 2. 
Don't even mention chapter 3 where we learn in verse 1 that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Where we learn in verse 4 that when Christ comes again, we shall be with Him in glory. Where we learn in verse 11 that Christ is all and in all. Where we learn in verse 15 that there is available to us the peace of Christ which rules in our hearts. And in verse 16 that the word of Christ can dwell richly within us. That's just five verses in chapter 3. I'm not going to mention chapter 4. But you see that the book of Colossians is full of heavy, rich, thick, theological truth about Jesus that the world absolutely has to know today because the Bible says that the last days will be characterized by deception. The last days in which we live will be characterized by deception. And so you, church, have got to know the truth and there is no better book than the book of Colossians. And so Paul says in verse 1 there that he is an apostle of this Jesus Christ that we're speaking of. The basic idea of apostle is one who is sent or a special agent. Paul says, knowing full well the doctrine that he would lay forth in the book of Colossians, he says, of this Jesus who is above all things, I am a special agent. I love that. It just sounds sort of sneaky. It sounds fun. He says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, a special agent of Jesus Christ. And he says, by the will of God. I love it. Paul knew exactly who he was in Christ Jesus. There was no doubt. He says, I'm one who is sent to preach the gospel, and it's by the will of God. I want to ask you this morning, do you have such confidence in who you are before the Lord? Amen. Do you have such confidence in who you are before the Lord? Can you say your name? A, whatever it is, by the will of God. Of course you can. You might not, you, you, maybe you just don't know that you can. If you are at all trying to follow Jesus Christ, if you're at all trying to follow him, he's faithful to get you in the midst of his will. You understand that? God is bigger than your mistakes. Amen. God is bigger than your mistakes. And in life, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to take wrong turns and you're going to go in wrong directions and you're going to get involved in wrong things. But if you are at all in the depth of your heart sincerely trying to follow Jesus, he will be faithful always to get you back on course. And so if you're a nurse today, you can say, I, Catherine, a nurse of Jesus Christ by the will of God. There's a difference. A nurse of Jesus Christ. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Not by way of eye service trying to please men, but by way of heart service trying to please God. I, Al, a surfboard shaper of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I, Don, a house mom of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I, Brit, a bad athlete of Jesus Christ. Just kidding. Whatever you are, that's where God has you. Be diligent there. Recognize that you're not working for man, you're working for God. And the moment you do that, you become a special agent. The moment you say, I am what I am by the will and the grace of God, and I am what I am for the glory of Jesus Christ, you become a special agent and you become very usable in that location now very usable in the hands of God the moment you have that mindset. Paul said that Timothy was with him. He loved little Timothy. 
He discipled and mentored Timothy, put him in charge of the church later on, the church in Ephesus. And this is in verse 2, that he's writing the letter to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. To the saints. The basic idea of that word is holy one. In the Greek, it's hagios. Hagios. Now, Paul took this word from, uh, from classic pagan Greek language. It's the terminology of pagan Greek religions. There is no other word that he could use to describe what he's trying to get at in the Greek language. And he was writing in the Greek language. So he took this word, hagios, and he applies it to the church. But here's what it meant in the culture. As I said, it was used classically in the pagan religions of the time in religious situations. And so if someone came uh, to a place where they worshipped the gods, they would bring a sacrifice and they would say, this sacrifice is hagios, holy to God, set apart to God. It is for the gods, really in plural, of course, in the Greek pantheon there. It is for the gods. The idea of the word hagios means devoted to the gods. So they bring that sacrifice. This is devoted to the gods. It's hagios. Or they would go to a building where they worship their false gods. And they would say this building is hagios, devoted to the gods. It doesn't mean there that word translated saint, holy ones. It doesn't mean in the sense of moral purity. Not in the original Greek language. Because inside those pagan temples, there was all sorts of immorality that took place. Some temples would have up to 300 hagios prostitutes. Set apart to the gods prostitutes. So it doesn't have the idea of morality. There's all sorts of immorality. It has the idea of devoted to the gods in Greek culture. And then what Paul did was he took this phrase... And he applied it to Christians and gave it a whole brand new meaning. And yet the sense of it is still the same. He took the phrase hagios, which means now devoted to the one true God. And the idea is being set apart for God. Being set apart from the mundane. Being set apart from the secular. And being set apart to the service and the worship of God. Not in the idea that we think, oh, he's so saintly. That's not the idea whatsoever. But it is simply saying, we have been set apart for the service and the worship of God. And that is true about every single Christian. It happens positionally the moment you are born again. The Holy Spirit then places you in Christ. At that moment, you are deemed hagios, a holy one, set apart from the mundane to the service and the worship of God alone. Now, positionally, every Christian is hagios. Practically. Works out different in our lives, doesn't it? To what priority do you give being set apart for the service and the worship of God? That's your identification in the heavenlies. It's already done in the heavenlies. You're already seated in the heavenlies. You've already been declared hagios, a holy one. But to what degree is that worked out in your life for you practically? I hope that there would be a sense of conviction as we read that. That it's written to us. 
Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, along with Timothy, to the saints and the faithful brethren who are in Carpinteria, who are on the coastline. I hope that there would be a sense of, oh, I'm hagios, I'm a holy one, in the sense of set apart, consecrated, but am I walking in that? Simply, do you wake up in the morning and say, okay, God, I'm yours. Your purposes. And you see, God's purpose for my life doesn't look like his purpose for your life. I hope you don't think that. Hope you don't come and apply for a job at the church this week. It means that wherever God has you, you're there for his glory. Wherever you are is where God wants to use you. But there's got to come that mindset of, I'm doing this for Jesus. Even the most mundane thing, I am doing this for Jesus. And so there is the idea of that positional sanctification, and then we grow in that progressively. And then he says, not only to Hagios is he writing the letter, but to the faithful brethren. Now he draws a distinction. And here we have an insight that there were those in the church of Colossae who had fallen away from the faith. They were beginning to believe these other ideas about Jesus. They were beginning to engage in these additions to the simplicity of Christianity. And so he makes a distinction. He says, I'm writing a letter to those Christians who are there, the Hagios and the faithful brethren, the ones that have not fallen away from doctrinal purity. So it gives us an insight about the things that are to come. And then we end with this. It says in the second part of verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace in the Greek language is the word charis. Charis. And again, Paul hijacked this word from pagan Greek culture. Here's what it meant in classic Greek. It meant uh, that property in a thing which causes it to give joy to the hearer or to the beholder. That property or that quality or that essence in a thing or a person that causes it to give joy to the one who hears or sees that person. So it was some sort of intrinsic or or, or some other quality that was in them. Charis, grace, the original idea. Later on in Greek culture, it came to signify an act an outflow of a giving heart, an act that was above and beyond the normal call of duty. So they would look at someone and they'd say, oh, there is, there, there's charis. There's a quality in them that makes them joyful to behold. Very powerful word in that culture. Not thrown around lightly. And then later on they would say, oh, that was an act of charis. That was an act of grace. That was something that was kind and that was above and beyond the call of duty. And in ethical terminology in Greek culture, it was a favor freely done without expectation of return and always for a friend. The idea of doing an act of charis, an act of grace for somebody who wasn't your friend was totally foreign to the Greek mindset. It was a selfless, a giving act or attitude, but it was always for a friend or a family member. And this is where Paul hijacks the word for the New Testament and takes it infinitely deeper. Because the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, that Jesus Christ died for us not while we were his friends, but while we were sinners and the enemies of God. 
And so when Paul talks about grace in the New Testament, it has a whole new idea now of that thing which is beautiful to behold, that thing which is above and beyond the call of duty, but that act which has been extended to enemies, you and I, the enemies of God, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 10, that is when Jesus died for us, not when you were desirable, not when you were pursuing him, not when you were friendly toward him, but when we were hostile and engaged in evil deeds and had a certificate of debt against us, which testified to our wickedness. There was an act of charis, an act of grace. Unheard of in Greek culture. Defined wonderfully and in a brand new way by the Apostle Paul. And the biblical idea of grace then, being that overflowing act from the heart of God, leaves no room for performance. It leaves no room for good works, either in trying to earn salvation or in trying to keep salvation. There is simply no room for it in grace because everything has already been accomplished by grace. Every bit of it. That's why it's so wrong when a Christian wakes up and he says, I'm a bad Christian today. Or, hey, gosh, I read my Bible today and I prayed and I did a good thing. I helped that old lady across the street. I'm a good Christian today. Totally unbiblical ideas. You're a dirty, rotten, filthy, scumbag, cheeseball sinner saved by an amazing act of kindness which was totally independent of how good or how bad you are. And it's a free gift. There's no room in that for you trying to improve upon your standing in grace before God. Romans chapter 5, the first verse says that our standing before God is in grace, that he lavishes kindness and favor upon you simply by his choice of his love. It's absolutely amazing. And we all know also, biblically speaking, that this grace is unlimited in its scope. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So the Christian might say, but I've blown it so much and there's so much sin in my life. And God would say, well, then there's even more grace for your life. But I've sinned again and I've sinned more and I've sinned more than anybody else. And God said, well, then I'll give you grace again and grace more and more grace than anybody else. The idea in the Greek language for that word abound is to exist in superabundance. Where sin abounds, grace abounds. To exist in superabundance. A translation of Romans 5.20 might read, grace existed in superabundance and then more grace added to the superabundance. Grace upon grace upon grace is what Paul wished for the church in Colossae. And that is what God wants for this church here. And for you as individuals, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, and that is what God has for you. Learn to walk in the grace of God. And the last thing he says then is peace. In the Greek language, irene, peace. In the verb form, it means to join. The verb form of that word means to join. The idea then being that when things are disjointed, there is a lack of harmony and a lack of well-being. But when things are put together or joined together correctly, then there is both harmony and well-being. Colossians chapter 1 verse 20 says that Jesus made peace 
for us with God through his blood. Satisfied the judgment, removed our sin, and so he has joined us to God. That is the accomplishment of the cross. Listen, the idea of peace, the verb form in the Greek language, to join. When we become Christians, the sin is removed and we are therefore joined to God. And so there is then the availability of harmony and well-being in our lives. Grace and peace. And grace always proceeds peace. And peace should always follow grace. And that's justifying peace. When we come to the Lord, we have peace because we have been justified. The sin and the penalty of death has been removed. We have been connected to God. It is is a state of untroubled and undisturbed well-being. Do you have that in your life? A state of untroubled and undisturbed well-being. Do you have that in your life? If not, it's available to you through Jesus Christ. Maybe that you're a sinner that's never been saved. What do I mean by a sinner? I mean, you do wrong things. You do. You know that, don't you? You do wrong things, really wrong things. According to God's standard, not man's standard, I do really wrong things. But I've been joined to God because I've been forgiven of my sins through what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. He made peace for me with God and he offers that to every single person here today. All you have to say is, wow, Jesus, I'm messed up. I'm a sinner. But I realize you died on the cross for my sins. Forgive me of my sins. Join me to God. Give me grace and peace. The moment you pray that, God will do that. And then you become a Christian. And what the Christian needs then, and this is really what Paul is referring to here, is sanctifying peace. It's justifying peace when we first are joined to God. But then there is the idea of sanctifying peace. That is that peace that should be abiding. That undisturbed, untroubled sense of tranquility and well-being that is produced in our hearts when we are yielded to the Holy Spirit. That sense of tranquility and well-being that is produced in our hearts when we are yielded to the Holy Spirit. We are submitted to Him. We are walking in obedience to Him. Then we experience the idea of sanctifying peace the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, which according to Galatians 5.22 is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And when we submit ourselves to the leading of the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 8 says that if you're a Christian, God leads you by His Spirit. If you submit yourself to the leading and to the working of the Holy Spirit, then there is an ever-increasing sense of sanctifying peace in your life as he unfolds love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, patience. You see, but the goal for the Christian is to keep himself joined to Christ Jesus. That, that's how we get peace. We keep ourselves joined. Jesus said this way in John chapter 15. Apart from me, you can't do anything. You abide in me, me being the vine, you being the branch. You abide in me, Jesus says, and you will bear much fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Is there a lack of peace in your life? Maybe you need to get rejoined to Jesus Christ. You need to get connected to him. You need to abide in him. He is longing to dwell with you, to meet with you, and to speak with you. But that abiding peace comes from that connection, that joining to Jesus Christ. It's all found in Jesus. It is 
all about Jesus. And so is the book of Colossians. And it'll be very fun to study with you guys. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. Thank you, Jesus, that you are high and exalted, the name above every name, and that in you and in you alone are grace and peace. And now I would ask, Lord, that as we begin to worship you and meditate upon you, that you'd work in our hearts concerning areas where we haven't been abiding, where we haven't been joined, connected. I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to convict us, that we would be moved to repentance, and then that there would come times of refreshing. Thank you for how simple you've made it. Your Spirit convicts, we repent, and then times of refreshing come from being in your presence, Jesus. Thank you for that, Lord. And then, Lord, that you'd be talking to us now as we worship you about grace, shedding upon us superabundant grace upon superabundant grace. Lord, I pray that if there's any sense of legalism amongst any of us, anyone that's fallen into that trap, or any idea of adding to what you have done, you would rid us of that this morning. Jesus, you've got to be the center. It's all about you and what you have done for us. Thank you that it's not about us or what we can do for you. Minister that to our hearts as we come before you. Humility with praise and thanksgiving, beseeching you to be the center of our lives and the center of our church. The Bible says that if we draw near to the Lord, he'll draw near to us. Let's draw near to him.